Exclusive. Supreme Court has voted to overturn abortion rights, draft opinion shows. So declared the headline in Politico last week for a bombshell story that stunned the political and legal worlds. The website had gotten hold of a 98-page draft opinion, written by Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito, revealing that a majority of five justices, at least as of last February, had voted to overturn Roe v. Wade the 1973 opinion that gave women a constitutional right to abortion. The story was astonishing on multiple levels. It showed that a majority of the court was in fact preparing to discard a core freedom that has been relied on by American women for nearly half a century. But it was also the first time anybody can remember when a draft opinion of the court had been leaked and published before the court had announced it, making Politico's story the mega scoop of the year, if not the decade. We'll talk to Josh Gerstein, one of two Politico reporters who broke the story, and then we'll talk to Carolyn Shapiro, a former clerk to retiring Justice Stephen Breyer, about what the leak tells us about how the court has operated and may operate differently in the future on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. So it is really a treat to have Gerstein in his hour of glory back on the pod. I should uh, uh, note for our listeners, how many times, Clyman, have we talked about doing whether I should do a particular story that's related to the Justice Department or the court or something? And we're, you know, we're debating, should we go for it? And then either you or I discover, hey, yeah, yeah. Don't Gerstein bother, already has it. Yeah, Don't right. bother, Gerstein's already, <laughs> Gerstein's already got it. it. Yeah, but however big his scoops in the past have been, this obviously aces them all as it does a, all, a lot of our scoops as well. This is the uh, kind of on your tombstone sort of note, guy yeah, who right. broke row overturned kind of thing. It's unbelievable. And it's just the beginning, right? We have the Supreme Court term doesn't end until June. We've got weeks more of trying to figure out exactly what's going on in the court because it was just a draft opinion. So no one knows what the final outcome is going to be. Well, I think we can kind of predict what the final outcome is going to be, but no one knows what the exact phrasing of the opinion is going to be. And the pressure is just mounting and mounting and mounting on the Supreme Court. I cannot see how the final decision, at least the breakdown, can be any different than it is right now, because than it was in that draft opinion that Gerstein got, because the idea that one or more justices might change their vote, and we're talking essentially about Kavanaugh and possibly Barrett, seems just you know improbable to me, given that they would then be seen as caving to public pressure, which would be you know, pretty damaging to the court's legitimacy on its face. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a sort of a fascinating conundrum for Roberts because, you know, Roberts was going to decide the case the way we think he's 
he would have decided the case if he was the if he was the deciding vote, which is to say to to affirm Mississippi's law but not overturn Roe because he wants to maintain the legitimacy of of the court and and so that the court doesn't look baldly political. But here, whatever he does, whatever happens, that is, I think, going to be the perception of the court. Because as you say, if a Kavanaugh changes his vote, you know, when you have people pro-choice, people protesting in front of his house, the optics look terrible. On the other hand, Chief Justice Roberts, if the decision stands the way it is now, is going to have that problem with the perception of the court that he's been trying to avoid all along. So he's uh, and, and I just say I know there's there's been this back and forth on Twitter about these protests outside the justices' houses, and you know people say, well, you know, public officials, you know, uh, this is this has been par for the course for some time now. Pelosi has protesters outside her house, but. Look, these are not elected officials. Elected officials are actually supposed to respond to the will of the people, or at least hear the will of the people. That's not what Supreme Court justices or any judge is supposed to do. He's not He or she is not supposed to be influenced by public pressure on anything. That's why we give them lifetime tenure to give them this elevated status in the judiciary. So I think it is, you know, more than bad taste on these for these protesters to be outside the guy's house and protesting, you know, uh, and, you know, their families live there. But it makes it seem to me almost impossible that the uh, 5-4 split is going to be any different when we see the final decision at the end of uh, June. And untangling all of these motives and repercussions is kind of at the heart of the speculation over who the leaker is, because everyone attempts to figure out who the leaker is based on what the motives and what the possible repercussions that the leaker might have thought would flow from the leak. I'm kind of curious. I'm going to ask you, Mike, a question. Um, You've yourself been the recipient of many a leak, I assume. I'm just kind of curious how what you think of all of the speculation of the leaking uh, and who the leaker might be. Is it unknowable? Can can we decipher well, it look, based I, upon? It, it, in my experience, um, both as a recipient of leaks and covering the leaks of others, it's often more surprising than you expect, right? Leaks come in many different ways through many different avenues and it's not always the you know the partisan person calling you up upset over one particular thing saying i've got something for you sometimes it is i and i don't want to you know dispute that but i'm just saying that sometimes things happen haphazardly somebody slips up and says something they didn't expect to say and then you know something and then you go to somebody else and say look i already know this and they think you're going to publish so they might like for some reason give you a little bit more there's lots of different ways these things happen and so you know until we know if if we ever know how this came about we should yeah. probably avoid speculation. I, yeah i always love hearing people who have no idea speculate on the motivations of leakers when in you know some cases i i do know what the motivation was because exactly like mike says you know there are all sorts of reasons that people leak sometimes it's vanity sometimes you just happen to have a really good relationship with the source uh, sometimes it's haphazard as you said 
I will say that in, in this particular case, it's such an extraordinary leak, such an extraordinary breach of protocols and norms that I think it makes it more likely that this was a strategic leak, um, if not a necessarily an ideological or partisan leak. But we, as you say, we may, we may never know. Now, that said, I've got a question for you, Victoria, which is, of course, from Democrats and, you know, activists, women's activist groups and others, you know, they want, you know, they say the message from this is we've got to change the filibuster and expand the court and codify Roe versus Wade with national legislation. So my first question, and I'm going to ask this of Carolyn Shapiro when she comes on, the former Supreme Court clerk. If Congress, let's say the Democrats somehow do maintain control of both houses of Congress in the midterm elections, which does look unlikely at this point, and they muster the votes to reject the filibuster and they pass such a law, you know, codifying Roe versus Wade. Would that over, you know, what happens when, you know, Texas, Mississippi and these other states that have effective abortion bans don't accept that? And which prevails? Can a can national statutory legislation override what state legislatures bans on abortion when the Supreme Court has decreed there is no constitutional right here? complicated question. I think the short answer is that Congress does have the power to do it under the Commerce Clause. But guess who gets to interpret whether or not Congress has the power to do this under the Commerce Clause? Exactly. It goes the final back to the word Supreme Court. Yeah. Yeah, so it, won't, it won't turn on whether or not there's a constitutional right to an abortion. It'll turn on whether or not Congress has the kind of the power under the Constitution to enact this sort of law. And I think it's a, a complicated question whether or Which not Which is an entirely court, different question from it's an, it, from, from a legal standpoint, yeah. it's an entirely different legal yeah, question. But this Supreme Court seems, you know, kind of not uh, to be exactly a friendly place to be making those arguments in any case. Right. So there's basically the, there's nothing the Democrats can do to stop this. Well, they could pass the law and, and try to Try to see it through to the Supreme Court. Yeah, but then it gets challenged by the, you know, by the conservative states and the and the Supreme Court likely having found there's no constitutional issue here in terms of protecting the right to abortion can say, you know, Congress can't tell Texas and Mississippi what how they can draft their own laws. It's a distinct possibility that that could happen, but it's not a certainty. And so the Democrats could potentially do this. But but as you know, that's the, the, the flip side of this is equally possible, which is that Mitch McConnell has already indicated um, in several interviews a willingness to consider national legislation to ban abortions nationwide. Right. And can that can that prevail over New York or Maryland or other Democratic states that legalize abortion? Again, guess who gets to decide that? Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, which seems to be a much more friendly environment for that argument, is at least based upon the, the Alito argument, which seems to be kind of trending towards a, an interpretation of personhood that would include unborn fetuses, in which case they might actually hold a ban entirely constitutional. 
but just in terms of the politics it's playing out now, I know that McConnell has said that a federal ban on abortion is a possibility. But I I mean, maybe that's just throwing some red meat to the base heading into the midterms. At the same time, the talking points that have gone out to Republicans that I think Axios got was, you know, don't talk about abortion. Talk about inflation. Talk about the economy. Talk about anything but abortion. And I just don't know how much of an appetite there is among um, Republicans um, in Congress to really push this issue when you look at the polling and, you know, abortion. Didn't we just have a new poll on this? More particularly when you look at the polling in some of the key states that are up this year. Exactly. uh, Particularly in in swing states, because in Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, all three of those states, which you've got Senate races and which you've got governor's races, uh, the net positive support for Roe is actually high enough for Republicans to be very worried about whether or not they're going to go on the offense about this there. Yeah. And I, I am getting the sense that that this is going to motivate uh, Democratic voters uh, more than uh, Republican voters heading into the midterms. And more than a sense, we actually did uh, poll on this. We were, I think, if not the first poll, one of the very first polls right after the leak of Justice Alito's draft opinion. And uh, this was a Yahoo News YouGov poll. And what it showed was uh, that in the generic ballot, Democrats have a five-point lead going into the elections. Now, that I know that sounds surprising. That'll sound surprising to people since this is such a terrible environment for Democrats. But typically, uh, Democrats do have a lead in the generic ballot because there are so many more registered Democrats than Republicans or people who identify as Democrats than Republicans. But when voters were asked to choose instead between a pro-choice Democrat or a pro-life Republican then the support for Democrats more than doubled and gave them a 13-point lead over Republicans. So that's, that's pretty, those numbers are pretty striking. And I will say, you know, I think in, in, we've often in the past debated gun control, abortion, uh, the Supreme Court generally, do these issues really motivate voters? And usually it's a muddle or, or, or maybe not so much. This is really different, right? I mean, Something really, really momentous has happened, and people are Democrats and people who support abortion are extremely angry and I think extremely motivated. And it's true that this this would be decision came out months before the midterms, but there's going to be a real decision that comes out in late June, and this is going to dominate the conversation between now and the midterms. So I think it's a really big deal politically. And just to underscore that, just one sort of nugget I read that, you know, was pretty head spinning in and of itself, which is, you know, there's this big effort now by lots of advocacy groups, uh, you know, to raise money to help women in these states that have effectively banned or so, you know, sharply restricted abortion to uh, help pay for them to fly or, you know, travel to a state with friendly abortion laws. And what state legislators in those states are talking about is expanding their laws to go after anybody who helps pay 
for somebody to fly to an abortion friendly state. And, you know, the only thing I can think of, you know, when I read that is, oh, my God, there's going to be a new underground railroad of, you know, surreptitiously, uh, you know, transporting women from these southern states to other states where there's uh, different abortion laws. It just is kind of mind boggling to contemplate. Anyway, on that somewhat depressing note, we've got two great guests starting out with um, the man of the hour, Josh Gerstein. So let's get to it. We now have with us Josh Gerstein, the senior legal affairs reporter for Politico and the co-author of... What I think uh, everybody agrees is the biggest single Supreme Court story in decades, if not ever. Josh, welcome back to Skullduggery. It's good to be back, Mike. Hi, Dan. Hi, Victoria. Congrats on the scoop. Let me be the 10 millionth person to congratulate you on that. In my day, when I have scoops, I generally have a rule of thumb with my editors, which is, I say, look, you never know how this is going to play. I've had stories I thought were really big and then just sort of fizzled. Nobody picked up on them. I've had stories that I thought were eh, and somehow people seize on them and they blow up. I suspect that um, my rule of thumb could have been thrown out the window when you got the draft opinion of Justice Alito. Am I right? Uh, yeah, I mean, we uh, we always thought it was going to be a big story. I mean, I don't know if all the ramifications of it we were able to completely think through. Uh, I wasn't, you know, we, we couldn't foresee every way in which it might resonate, but uh, there was no doubt we had a story that was of substantial uh, magnitude. And, you know, it had the attention of uh, all levels of management uh, at Politico. I will say the intense attention and scrutiny of all levels of management. This was not one that was slipped through by a couple reporters and an editor at deadline on a on a Monday night. I'll put it that way. So can we uh, assume that this was in the works for some time? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're being a little vague about just to, uh, how much time we took, but we certainly took a while to study the document, to talk to people about the specifics of the court's internal procedures and to you know use a variety of different means to try to authenticate the document and raise our confidence level to a very, very high point so that we would be ready to publish. I mean, we definitely didn't want to publish it uh, if we had any significant concern that the document was a forgery or a fake or, or had been altered in some way. And so as you can imagine, Mike, it took a while to do that, uh, but we did it. And I, I think it's fair to say that took several days at a minimum, but I don't want to be more specific than that. And just to be clear, I mean, this has been said, and I want to ask you if if it's accurate to the extent that you know, this has never happened before. A draft leak of a Supreme Court opinion. So, you know, I wrote a sidebar that went along with the main story that talked about the history of leaks at the court. I may have missed a couple. I think we got most of them in there. 
I think that that's true, but trying to be a very careful reporter, I'm not 100% sure that's true. And the, the reason I say that is because in a previous era when documents were not typically printed in full in the newspaper, it does appear that there were occasions when reporters were privy to the rationale at a minimum of forthcoming decisions from the court. For example, during Roe versus Wade, there was a leak to the Washington Post uh, where a reporter clearly had access in some fashion to internal court documents, definitely a memo that one justice wrote to, to other justices. And the way that story reads, that reporter probably had some information about opinions that people had proposed in those cases. You know, whether he, he saw, I assume it was a he in that era 50 years ago, um, whether he actually saw those or had them in his hand or read them, I can't be totally sure. And then we have had some final opinions that were kind of prematurely released to reporters maybe a day or two or a few hours ahead of time uh, where they had the documents, it looks like, or they saw them. So it's not entirely unprecedented, but I do think in the modern era, when people put their scoops up on the internet and uh, the public can read the underlying document for itself. Uh, certainly since we've been in that era, this hasn't happened. Yeah, but there is uh, one leak, ironically or coincidentally, involving the very same issue that did not, it wasn't a leak of an opinion, a draft opinion or a memo, but it was actually a leak of the ruling in Roe versus Wade back in 1973 to Time Magazine, right? Right. And so this is a weird case because I'm not even totally sure that you can call it like a leak because they ended up publishing the outcome of the case. And I think some excerpts or the thrust of the opinion, as I understand it, in an issue that went on the newsstands a few hours before the opinion was formally released by the court. It sounds like what happened is sort of a fouled up kind of embargo situation where a reporter was able to negotiate some inside access to members of the court or, or court clerks and, and so forth, and was able to piece together a story about the opinion. But it sounds like he did that, you know, on the understanding that it wouldn't come out until after the opinion was published, which frankly is the same kind of understanding that justices seem to have had with some historians and perhaps some reporters or book authors over the years. So it might not have been that different, but there was some kind of a delay with the decision and it ended up that the magazine came out before the decision instead of vice versa. But it, it's funny, Dan, because it was also the, the actual Roe versus Wade decision in 1973. So uncannily enough, it seems to be in the decisions of the most uh, controversy and contention that uh, the leaks seem to happen. So hearing this history of leaks that you've just uh, kind of gone through, one would think maybe then that the leak that you got is not going to since it's not unprecedented, is not necessarily going to cause substantial disruption to the Supreme Court, but we know the opposite is true. It seems to have unleashed extraordinary consequences both within and without the court. Can you tell us anything, at least that you know so far, about what this has done within the court to the way the justices are speaking to each other or the way the clerks are involved with one another at this stage? Well, uh, there certainly seems to be a lot of mutual suspicion. Uh, the court isn't that large, right? I mean, you're talking about nine justices who have four law clerks typically. Uh, so you've got about 36 law clerks, a fairly small like support staff for the court. 
they have employees in the hundreds, but I think most of them are police officers. And so, and then you have the justices themselves. So it, it's a fairly small institution and it's a very kind of unusual situation now where you have people in the same offices looking at each other, looking at the people across the hall and thinking somebody in here might be the mole or the source. So that part of it, I think, has to be kind of personal. And then I have encountered already, speaking to some ex-clerks, one in particular uh, who I've dealt with regularly in the past, uh, has been at at least one Politico event. He wouldn't talk to me. He was like so upset by this disclosure. Uh, he sent me an email saying, basically, I'm, I'm out of sorts about this and I can't and I can't talk to you about it right now. He didn't seem to have any intimate knowledge about it, but he, he felt it kind of personally that this breach of trust, I think, would harm the relationship between justices in particular and their clerks, which seems to have been treated by some people, some of those justices and some of those clerks, with an extraordinary degree of reverence that maybe is not matched in any other political institution or perhaps almost any other institution in America, the, the bond between some of these clerks and, some, and the justices they uh, work for. And some people think that this has been changed permanently. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, Josh, if, if you see this particular extraordinary leak as a kind of a culmination of kind of fraying of those bonds over the past, you know, however many years. I mean, we... I wrote about this when Chief Justice Roberts changing his opinion, uh, changing his vote in the Obamacare decision uh, came out. That was considered extraordinary back then. Right. I mean, you know, I don't want to undercut our scoop by suggesting that it is not, you know, several orders of magnitude removed from all the other leaks that have ever come out of the court. Uh, I do think there is a little bit of a disconnect between the perception and the reality. I mean, the perception is it's a hermetically sealed box and nobody ever says anything about what goes on there. And it's completely unlike Congress, completely unlike the White House and the executive branch agencies. No one's ever trying to dig each other in the press. Uh, they do their business only through the published opinions and at oral arguments and everything else is kept behind closed doors. False, not true. Many examples that that's not true uh, and has, has never been true. It does seem though that perhaps over the last 10 to 20 years, maybe a little bit longer than that, as the court has drifted into these more and more intense ideological camps that justices are less and less likely to stray from, uh, that rigidity, I think, does uh, lead to more leaks and more anger. Uh, and Dan, you mentioned the first Obamacare case with Justice Roberts, which it's hard to believe is actually a decade ago now. And we did see leaks there. There were at least hints of what was going on behind the scenes in advance of the decision. And there was a pretty good flow of leaks after the decision confirming that Chief Justice Roberts had switched his position in the case at the last minute, had decided to set upon this argument that the individual mandate in Obamacare was actually a tax and not really a mandate. And that saved this key component of Obamacare in that case. So, along a 5-4 line. And there were even tea leaves, if you look through the decisions, right, there were little indicators that this seemed like it was a, a majority opinion before, and it somebody abruptly tried to change it, uh, maybe didn't do all the search and replaces that they should have right before it came out. So there have been leaks. 
one place in particular I would point to is the Wall Street Journal editorial page seems to have an unusual degree of insight into what the conservative justices are thinking. They never attribute anything to anyone. There's never a source quoted, but they have an uncanny ability to predict where justices are and how a justice might be in the process of trying to assemble a majority in an unconventional way. And their editorial, just days before your story published, seemed, and I think a lot of people have interpreted, as a preview in some ways of of your story, right? Because, you know, it, it sort of sounded like they were speculating, but it sounded like informed speculation, right? That uh, Justice Roberts was going to be uh, trying to bring over Justice Kavanaugh, maybe Amy Coney Barrett to his side, that uh, I, I think they reported flatly that the opinion had been assigned to Alito, right? That sounds like a leak. Right. I mean, it certainly sounded like, as you say, at a minimum, very well-informed uh, speculation. Now, does that mean they're getting stuff directly from the justices or through a game of telephone uh, between people close to the justices? I don't know. But they had a similar editorial back uh, before the Obamacare uh, decision came out, I believe. There have been a couple other ones where they seem to, like I said, they had just this amazing ability of soothsaying to be able to uh, determine what a decision was likely to be or how the conservative ox was likely to get possibly gored in a particular case. And then, you know, there's also been a lot of books. I mean, we should give credit where credit is due back to the 70s, early 80s, The Brethren by Bob Woodward and, and Scott Armstrong. And then Jeff Tubin has done books and Joan Biskupic has, has done books that really pull back the curtain on the court. Typically, though, by the nature of them being books, right, they're retrospective. And, um, and that's not that unusual. Uh, justices die. The papers are at their discretion about how to release them, but they become public. Uh, I've heard as I was reporting on this story that Justice Ginsburg had a couple of professors who had access to all her papers, even when she was still serving on the court. So it's not a hermetically sealed box. And you could see how a word here or there from one of those people could easily lead to a disclosure about the status of deliberations on the court, despite the intensity of anger and and the sense of violation that you got from Chief Justice Roberts's statement on Tuesday, which I should note as an aside, confirmed that uh, the draft that we published was an actual authentic draft opinion from the court. But one thing is uh, pretty clear, all of these leaks, previous leaks notwithstanding, this is possibly the first one that has led to a full-scale investigation of the source of the leak. So have you been contacted by the FBI or by the court martial yet regarding how you got this? We haven't, as of now, we haven't been contacted by any, any officials about how we got it. So I'm not totally clear on the scope of that investigation. I do know that the uh, Roe v. Wade leak that uh, Dan mentioned earlier to Time Magazine, that Warren Berger, as I understand it, did conduct some investigation into that leak. I'm not sure that the FBI was involved, but there was an investigation and he went to Time Magazine with a huge sheaf of papers. But it's interesting, uh, as I understand it, again, doing some reporting on how these things happened, Apparently not all the justices in that instance were terribly enthusiastic about the court conducting a thorough investigation. And it, it brings to mind the notion that, you know, this is not actually a top-down operation. Like Chief Justice Roberts set aside 
that he can't control the votes of other justices, which does seem like it's increasingly an issue for him since he, he, he's not really at the center of the court now anymore. But separate from that, it's not clear that he has the right to order anybody to cooperate. I mean, you know, I guess he could refer to the FBI, but um, short of that, if one justice hypothetically were to say, uh, my clerks aren't going to be interviewed and I'm not going to be interviewed. We'll see you later. It's not clear to me that he can tell them, I'm sorry, Justice Blank, you have to do this. Under what authority? It's not clear he has that authority. Well, let me just pick up on that because Eugene Volokh, who writes the Volokh blog, uh, widely read in legal circles, was quoted in the Times yesterday saying, I think it's pretty clear there is at least enough for a grand jury to investigate. The interesting question is to what extent there's going to be a subpoena to a reporter. But I guess my question is, is that really true? Because what is the what's the crime here? This isn't a cl classified document. Is there any I'm not aware of any statute that protects the confidentiality of a Supreme Court draft opinion. So how could the FBI get involved at all? How could a grand jury get involved at all? How could you end up with a subpoena? Yeah, I think it would require a very broad interpretation of the statutes to think that there was a crime in the leak itself. As you point out, Mike, it's not a classified document. It's not a document in a few other categories of, say, personal identifying information. There's no social security numbers in there. So it's not something that's covered by existing statutes as best I can determine, uh, except for this. If you take a super broad interpretation of theft from the federal government, you can assert that almost any not explicitly permitted disclosure of information from the federal government is a theft of that information. Now, that theory is very, very rarely employed in court. It's, uh, as far as I know, almost never employed in contested situations. But you can find a few instances where people, let's say, who work at the FBI, a secretary of some sort, uh, gives a friend information about a criminal case and then well, yeah, guilty that's, that's to a theft ongoing of, of criminal case from the government. Yeah. So there are those cases. They don't usually do them in a, as I say, go to trial on a charge like that, because it raises all kinds of questions about, are you saying that every disclosure not explicitly authorized by, I don't know, the head of the agency or your immediate supervisor? And what if somebody, instead of giving us a physical opinion, let's say, or sending us a physical opinion, uh, let's say they picked up the phone and read us the opinion. Uh, would that be a theft of that information from the court? I mean, you could argue that in sort of a law school class. Uh, maybe Victoria can can give us some more um, advice on that. But but it doesn't seem to me a real world kind of thing that the Justice Department would ever pursue. Now there is a way to get at this, which is you can sort of force people to come in and ask them if they did this, and then if they lie about it, potentially. That's what I was going to say. I mean, that's the. That's the way that that leak cases used to be prosecuted before the Justice Department started using the the uh, the Espionage Act uh, willy nilly. And I guess the marshal, the court marshal, is a U.S. official. So I guess it would, if you lied to either her one, or her agents, that would be yeah. a violation of one thousand and one, right? So still seems 
I think the, the 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 most likely you know leverage that um, folks have is to the extent that any clerks were knowledgeable or involved, you know, they have prospective careers uh, ahead of them and um, they are not going to be inclined to lie if questioned by a federal officer such as somebody with the marshals. Well, I mean, you, uh, we'll, we'll have to see what plays out. Like I said, I don't know even if it will come to that or in, for how many people it will come to that. I mean, uh, it's quite possible looking back to the prior precedent that you might see one or more justices decline to participate. I mean, w- what happens if somebody says, no, I'm not going to be interviewed? I don't know what, then they can just fire them for that basis? I mean, I, I don't know. Can only the justice fire one of their clerks or can the chief justice or the marshal order a clerk to be fired? I don't know the answer to that. You know, I think in in practical terms, the chief justice might be able to do it uh, because the marshal and the chief justice basically together control the disbursements of the court. There's a statute you can go and look at that lists um, what the marshal's responsibilities are. It doesn't say anywhere in there, by the way, conduct leak investigations. So I, I don't know what their level of expertise is to do that. I'm sure the textual interpretation of the provision is being very carefully looked at right now. And I just, I wonder if this is going to change, fundamentally change the way the court is administered in terms of these kinds of rules and guidelines and putting, there isn't a code of ethics written down, right? I mean, it's just kind of handed down from uh, across the generations. Uh, So will this change? I don't even know, to be honest, if all clerks are required to sign something. I've heard that Many justices give their clerks a very, very stern lecture at the beginning of the term about the importance of confidentiality. And there's been a lot of discussion of that in uh, books and so forth that um, there was a a clerk by the name of Ed Lazarus who wrote a book a few decades ago that generated a huge controversy. Interestingly enough, one prominent fellow by the name of Richard Painter uh, said in the Wall Street Journal at that time, that Lazarus ought be at least potentially be prosecuted for a theft of information or something along those lines. But it came out then that it's sort of like there are stern lectures, but by and large, I don't even know if there's a written policy and I don't know if any or all clerks were required to sign it. It's just an understanding. And look, uh, as you know, what is it, $400,000 or $500,000 bonus that clerks now get when they go out to a law firm after uh, having served at the court. So, you know, that has the tendency to focus the mind a little bit uh, that you don't want to get crossways with the court or with your justice, if no other aspect. Of, how, how much uh, is that common bonus? decency? How much? I think said? it's in the vicinity of 400,000 at this point. Maybe what? Victoria knows uh, <laughs> yeah. when because I graduated from clerk, college, I think it was closer to a $400,000 bonus. Yeah. When you sign, when you with sign a law with a law firm, when you sign at your law firm, you get a huge bonus. Wow. Yeah. It's like baseball salaries. No. (laughs) (laughs) Almost. All right. So how confident are you you can protect your source or sources? Well, I mean, we'll do our our best. We tried in our publication of the story to try to safeguard our source or sources as best we could, as well as others who, you know, helped us in preparing it. But I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, 
we'll see. I mean, look, one thing I think we do have as something of an advantage here is if this somehow does end up at the Justice Department, um, Attorney General Garland went on record last year, as did another very prominent person in the Biden administration, that being President Joe Biden himself, saying basically that it was flatly wrong for the Justice Department to be involved in subpoenaing reporters directly or even coming after reporters, you know, uh, for their records, phone records, email records or otherwise. But and, Warren, you know, wasn't was there so... some fine print to that that, that, that that doesn't rule it out entirely? There can be exceptions. There, yeah. there are a few exceptions if you're doing something that is not considered by them to be journalism. But a lot of the exceptions that they had back in the Obama era, they explicitly ruled out to the point where many of the national security people got kind of upset saying, you're basically saying you're never going to pursue a leak case again through these means. And so I just don't know, having said, we'll only do this where the absolutely critical secrets of the country or some other overriding interest is at stake. But who knows? I mean, we do have a Justice Department now that's headed by someone who spent, um, what, two or three decades on the federal bench. So perhaps he uh, views these issues as more sacrosanct. The secrecy of the court is more sacrosanct. I was a little surprised that when he was asked about this, Attorney General Garland, a few days ago, he didn't take the opportunity to tee off on the leak. He basically just punted the question uh, completely. And and given his, his history uh, and the fact that he must know, I assume he knows each and every one of those justices. Uh, he I remember, frankly, uh, interviewing Garland up at the uh, at the court when he would come in in his capacity um, as sort of an administrative judge overseeing the federal uh, judiciary. He's certainly familiar with all those people and with the court's procedures. And so it'd be quite interesting to see what equities he thinks are at work in making a decision if this is punted to the FBI. And I don't even know if it will be. I'm skeptical of that. I mean, the only scenario that you know would be interesting is if Chief Justice Roberts were to sort of take up the cause and say, you know, somehow get involved and ask Garland to use his authorities. Yeah, I'm thinking about this. It seems a little problematic in some ways. Um, it, you know, to prosecute a case like this, as you were suggesting before, based on existing statutes, you'd have to be pretty creative and read the statutes very broadly. And I just, just don't know if the chief justice of the Supreme Court uh, would want to go down that path. This doesn't seem like the role of the court. If it comes to them, they can interpret it. But to start the process, it just seems, frankly, kind of weird. Right. I mean, look, the court does get involved in these things, whether it likes to or not sometimes, right? We have protests outside the court. A few years ago, we had protests in the court. I think I might have even been in the courtroom one day where somebody started yelling. I think somebody had a, a pen camera in their glasses or something like that, which was a real pain in the butt because after that, for like the following year, you know, reporters were basically given an, uh, you know, a rubber glove search every time they went in because we were going to you know, after covering the court for 10 or 15 years, we're going to try to sneak some kind of recording device in there so you could be suspended, you know, for the rest of your life. But whatever, that was the way they uh, handled it. And you do have those issues that come up about demonstrations, whether, but that's pretty standard stuff. And would they want to make new law about that? Would they want to 
make some new law? You know, what about the things we've heard in the last couple of days with people complaining that it should be illegal or is illegal to protest outside a justice's home? It's just very uncomfortable, I would think, for them to try to break new ground on that kind of a case where they're own interests are so directly at stake. And if that case gets appealed, as it would, and gets <laughs> yeah. appealed back to the Supreme Court, <laughs> right. that would be that's a, the interesting. problem, right? And and so that's a weird issue. There's just all kinds of issues. I mean, what if they do a really aggressive investigation? And as leak investigations sometimes do, maybe they do find who they think is the leaker, and maybe they don't. But there's a good chance they'll find something else. They're going to find that a justice was on the phone with some other reporter within a week or so before this uh, opinion emerged, right? Or they're gonna find some other impropriety, some clerk or some spouse of some clerk was looking at something on a computer that they shouldn't have been or had documents that weren't secured. It's very rare that one of those investigations doesn't cause some collateral damage that has something that is not really related to what they started out investigating. Yeah, I'm wondering like, are all the justices themselves going to cooperate in this investigation? Sotomayor and Alito and Thomas and Kagan. I It just, uh, you know, there's so many different scenarios here. Clearly, some folks on the conservative side were speaking to folks who, you know, communicated to the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, by the way, after your story, there was another leak of internal deliberations. On the other hand, you know, if the marshals go to Sotomayor and say, give us your phone records and, you know, uh, let us interview your clerks, what does she do? I, you know, I don't know. Well, and you also wonder, you know, as we've been talking, you know, for many years, I think uh, about leak investigations, you know, what does this mean for the future? You know, if, if they find themselves under direct scrutiny when they get the Edward Snowden case or when they get the next more routine leak case that happens in Washington every couple of years, do they feel more sympathy because their actions were put under scrutiny? Do they feel compelled to give a stern message that leaking is intolerable? Um, it, it definitely has changed the dynamic a little bit. And I think in a somewhat unpredictable way into, into how they'll look at these, these issues from, you know, how they looked at them before, you know, that opinion was, was made public. So meanwhile, another pretty dramatic change that's flowing from the leak, as, as you've already alluded to, is a series of protests at a variety of justices' houses. And in addition, the Supreme Court has, has thrown up a fence around the front to limit uh, protests, it, it increasingly feels like, you know, kind of the Supreme Court under siege, uh, an embattled Supreme Court. That has to be having a pretty dramatic effect on the way the justices are thinking about their job and the kind of the uh, the general validity or, or the, the kind of the future of the Supreme Court as an institution. Yeah, and and this now uh, intense scrutiny that they're under and the protest and the siege and the eight-foot-high fence, I think it's also notable. It comes on the heels of two years of relative isolation, even greater isolation than usual for the court because of of COVID. Um, Many reporters and the general public have been locked out of the Supreme Court's courtroom for the last two years. They keep promising that they'll they're about to let the public back in again. It was supposed to happen a couple of weeks ago. And at the last minute, a couple of days ahead of time, they said, no, we're going to keep handing out our opinions 
electronically. Uh, they do allow the hard pass credentialed permanent reporters who are assigned to the Supreme Court uh, into the arguments that they've had in the uh, in the chamber. But it's a mostly empty chamber. Even the lawyers you know, that are in the Supreme Court bar aren't allowed to be in there. So they're already, uh, you know, they start from the beginning in the ivory tower of sort of the judiciary, right? And and somewhat uh, separated, um, almost a mon monastic existence in, in the views of some people. And then you have COVID. And now you have this thing where you have the protests and the wall and the court really, you know, I think in a, just a very weird headspace uh, as they go into this final uh, weeks of the term. And as we understand it, this abortion case isn't resolved, right? I mean, setting all those other issues aside, just how they're going to work this out. Is Roberts going to be able to peel off a Kavanaugh or a Barrett for some middle ground position that both the people on the right and the left consider unprincipled, but which could perhaps, you know, uh, prompt some of the protests to die down a little bit, at least until the next abortion case comes forward with a 10 week ban or an eight week ban or a five week ban? Or will the conservatives say, you know, we've had enough? Uh, that opinion that we got suggests that the conservatives are real, real willing to say, we'll take, you know, we'll take our lumps and we're going to get rid of Roe after 49 years. And so does that consensus hold for the next seven weeks? And does what's happened over the last week or two and the protests and the opinion change that dynamic, right? It has to change it a little bit, but does it change it enough to make a difference to the outcome? And let's not forget that there are a bunch of other pretty significant cases that they're in the middle of deciding, not just Roe. I mean, they've got a pretty big gun control case that's sitting in front of them right now that could substantially rework Second Amendment law, depending on how, how it flows out. I, I guess you're hoping for a leak on that too, or yeah, you, you got you got that opinion. Any other for any us? other cases I'd love you'd to like to get a leak it from? And I would publish it, but I've been a little busy, Victoria. So you know, if they don't send it to me in time, uh, if I just get it through the normal distribution channel, that will keep me busy uh, busy enough. I think. All right. Well, all Supreme Court employees uh, listening to this podcast know that um, uh, Josh is a little busy, but he's available. Uh, and it says Mike Isikoff. Yeah, well, and we are too <laughs> right. here at Skullduggery. Anyway, Josh, I want to thank you again uh, and uh, congrats for what you have unleashed upon the country, which is pretty uh, significant. So thanks Mike, again. Thanks so much for having me on. Dan, Victoria, great to talk to you too. We are now joined by Carolyn Shapiro, a former clerk to Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, now a law professor at the Chicago Kent College of Law. Carolyn, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So the reactions to the bombshell Politico story, I think, you know, came down to two separate ones. The first is uh, a wow I can't believe the Supreme Court is actually going to do this and overturn Roe versus Wade. And B, wow, I can't believe that somebody actually leaked a draft opinion of the Supreme Court. Um, when you first read the Politico story, were you in the camp of A or B? I was in B. I was very surprised by the leak, but I was not at all surprised by the content of the opinion. That's what I thought they would do. That's what I 
expected after oral argument. It's frankly what I expected even before oral argument. And the fact that somebody did leak this, you were a clerk of the court, you know something about the way the court works. How can something like this have happened? Well, the how, I don't think is all that complicated. There are people who have access to the opinions, the drafts as they circulate, uh, the law clerks, the chamber staff. There could be other staff members within the court who have access to the drafts. Within the court itself, uh, there's at least when I was there, which was now quite a while ago, about 25 years ago, but uh, there wasn't a lot of trying to keep things secret as between chambers. It sometimes could happen. It's not like it would never happen, Um, but as between chambers or even within a chambers, that was unusual. And so it's not surprising to me that it could happen just as a matter of logistics. What's surprising to me is that it would happen as a matter of the way people do their jobs. It is uh, the the secrecy and confidentiality norms are extremely strong. And there are also extremely strong senses of loyalty between law clerks and their justices, between law clerks and the court, between staff and the court and the justices they work for. And so this this is surprising for those reasons. Uh, It's possible. Now, I just want to be clear, I don't have any information to prove this, but it's possible that uh, it was leaked at the tacit, with the tacit approval of a justice, or even at the behest of a justice. But we don't have that information. I'm Just certainly not suggesting that necessarily this. is true. Yeah, right. Each each justice has what four clerks? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Basically, so, yeah. So beyond the clerks, who else would have access? to an opinion like this. And as part of that, how many copies of a draft opinion would there be? So in the chambers themselves, if if it's still the same, and I believe it's at least comparable, if not identical, when I was there, there were two secretaries or administrative assistants and an additional aide in each chambers. And the chief justice had, I think, some additional administrative support. That's not a lot of people. Um, right, so it would be four law clerks and three other chambers staff. It's not, it, there wouldn't be any routine way for another staffer within the court to have access, I can't, that I would can think of. Now, when I was clerking, the drafts circulated in hard copy. So uh, we get these envelopes that would, the chamber's aides would deliver to each different chambers. And if we wanted multiple copies of them, we would make copies. Now, my understanding, which is that the drafts circulate by email, uh, so I don't, I can't, and I don't know precisely what the logistics are about who receives the email and then how does it get distributed within each chambers. I, I don't know the answer to that. Carolyn, let's just start talking about the substance of the, not decision, but draft opinion. And I, you, you started off by saying that you were not at all surprised by it, but Would you agree with this statement, not surprising, but radical? Because I've heard that word used a lot from uh, uh, some quarters. I guess I'd say not surprising, but extreme. It is uh, very, uh, the draft has written, and some of this could change, but the draft has written is really 
claims that it's just about Roe and abortion, but it is not possible to cabin its reasoning to the extent that the draft suggests. And it could lead to challenges to things like the right to use contraception, the, it could lead to challenges to the right to have uh, extramarital sex or to have sex with a person of the same sex. Uh, it could lead to challenges to Obergefell, to, to marriage equality. And that is because, if I understand it, Justice Alito said that abortion, that, that the word abortion does not appear in the Constitution and nor is it uh, rooted in history or tradition, right? And that would be the same with those other constitutional rights. That yeah, but wait a second. About. Let me just break in here. He also made it clear that well, the, I, I, that's the difference right. We're getting, is, she'll get to that. The difference is abortion involves, in his view, the taking of a human life, which none of those other issues do. So, right. So there right. are a couple of different things to say. The first thing is, yes, it is. What he says is abortion doesn't, the word abortion isn't in the constitution and it's not deeply rooted in history and tradition. But there's a lot of to criticize what he says about his analysis. And again, it's a draft, but in that analysis of what is deeply rooted in history and tradition, there's a lot to criticize about that. For one thing, in fact, at common law, it was legal to have an abortion. It wasn't criminal to, to, to abort a pregnancy up until what's called quickening, which is when the woman can feel the, the fetus move, which is, which is you know approximately the viability line, it, it varies. So he doesn't fully address that reality, I would say. He says, well, it was illegal after quickening, therefore there was, there was, there's no deeply rooted right. But he also defines the right extremely narrowly, right? If you define the right that's deeply rooted as uh, the right to, like, it's a little easier to think about this in the context of marriage, but if it's the, the right to marry somebody of the opposite sex, or is it the right to marry? right, that you can define a right narrowly or broadly. And if you define it, the narrower you make your definition, the easier it is to say, well, that's not deeply rooted in our history and tradition because there was something maybe similar, but not the same. So that's part of what he does. And we could say the same thing about contraception. We can say, right, that we could say that, that it's, it's not clear that there's always been a right to use contraception deeply rooted in our legal history and tradition. So that has to do with the deeply rooted side. The side about the difference between abortion and these other rights having to do with the uh, what he describes as the taking of a human life, really as a legal analytic matter comes in at a different stage, right? There's the definition of the right. And then there's the question of what kinds of government regulation of that right are appropriate or permissible. And in the, the that there, there are two different analytical stages. So importing the taking of a human life discussion into the first part, it was like where we're defining the right, is confusing. And really, ultimately, whatever they say in this opinion can't analytically, won't necessarily analytically withstand future challenges to some of these other hot button social issues. In addition, some of the forms of contraception that we think that are contraception do involve preventing the implantation of a fertilized of, of an embryo, a fertilized egg. Now, some and some people and consider that 
equivalent to taking a human life. But medically, that's understood as contraception. And if we're going to define abortion or the taking of a human life constitutionally that broadly, that means that IUDs, for example, become could be regulated by states, could be outlawed by states. Certain other types of medication, uh, certain forms of the pill, for example, could be outlawed by states because they prevent implantation of a fertilized egg. So the implications there are really, really quite broad, even if you just limit it to this taking of a life framework that he creates. Let me jump in and ask, I'm not sure that Alito has uh, necessarily been reading all of the criticism of his opinion since it leaked, uh, but certainly there was probably a back and forth within chambers once he circulated it in February. How close to a final decision would any comparable opinion have been? In other words, has Alito, is, is this February draft pretty close to the final that we might see? That's hard to answer. I can say that it was clearly written with the expectation of getting five votes. The leaks that are coming out of the court suggest that there are still five votes for the basic guts of the opinion. We could expect that there might be some changes in language, that there might be some arguments that are either toned down or amped up or even removed entirely. Uh, because sometimes justices ask for those kinds of changes as a condition of joining an opinion. And we don't know anything about what kind of internal discussion those justices have been having, because all we have is this leaked opinion, which was the original circulated draft. So my instinct would be that we're going to see an opinion that is not identical, uh, that almost certainly has five votes to overturn Roe, and that the guts of it will be basically what we've seen here, but it won't be identical. One thing that I think we, I don't know if we know this, but there, but a lot of speculation anyway, that the chief justice, that his position is that he would have over, I'm sorry, that the chief justice uh, would have upheld the Mississippi law, but would not have gone so far to overturn Roe versus Wade. And that presumably, this is what most people think, that Chief Justice Roberts is trying to bring along either Justice Kavanaugh, maybe maybe Justice uh, Barrett over to his side. What arguments would he be making to try to win them over and get them to change their vote? Well, one argument is that that's all they have to decide, uh, right? The, the case in front of them is, in fact, a challenge to this law that outlaws abortion starting at 15 weeks of pregnancy. So that they can answer the basic question before them in that case and leave for another day the bigger question or the the more earth-shattering question, I guess, about overturning Roe altogether. But it's important to note that if that would be a major incursion. I'll just say that. And I'll finish answering your question. But that would be a pretty major incursion on the abortion right, even though most abortions take place much earlier than 15 weeks. Uh, for people who do need abortions, that late. It is often for pretty significant reasons related, for example, to health of the mother, health of the of the fetus, et cetera. Okay, so to answer your question, what might he say? One is, well, we don't have to do this. Why should we? Um, another is he might make some of the arguments that were made by the, the parties in the case supporting or, or supporting the Mississippi law, sort of along the lines of, well, 
Casey talked about an undue burden. If mo since most abortions take place before 15 weeks, it's not really an undue burden to outlaw abortion after 15 weeks. Now that doesn't really speak to the woman who needs the abortion at that point, but that's the I think the basic logic that he would that he would be pushing. Thinking about, you know, back to your time on the Supreme Court, can, what can you tell us about the impact of this leak on the the kind of the internal workings of the court of the level of trust amongst the justices um, of the justices with their clerks? A, a lot of people regard this as sort of, you know, earth shattering and dramatically reworking the way the court is is going to operate, not just for the next seven weeks, but potentially for the foreseeable future. Do you think that is a, a reasonable perspective? I think, I think it's not unreasonable to imagine that when there are other really controversial, highly visible, highly salient cases that they might impose some new security measures uh, now, and I don't actually know, for, as I said earlier, right, exactly what all the security measures today are, but I could imagine that happening. I could imagine them deciding, well, for certain cases, we're going to have more of a need-to-know circulation policy. We're going to have more some more ability to, to track who has access. Yeah. Let me jump in. I, I guess I'm not asking that question in as much as we're talking about security or sort of like the logistics of how things are handled. I'm really more interested in the kind of relationship amongst the justices. We, we've seen a kind of a heightened or an escalated, you know, sort of language amongst them. You know, Justice Sotomayor talking about the stench that would hang around the court if this were to happen. If you scroll back to, you know, 30 years when there was a leak on the D.C. Circuit, you know, a, a comparable leak surrounding then Judge Thomas about to become Justice Thomas. There were actually fisticuffs between and fistfights between judges on the D.C. Circuit as a result of that leak. Is that the sort of like kind of angry rhetoric and discord amongst the justices that we can see coming out of this? Well, I have to say I'd be surprised, but I, it's, you know, it might depend on what gets unearthed if anything does get unearthed about where the leak came from. I think the justices, and again, the, the personnel was quite different when I was there. Uh, so things may be somewhat different now, but I think as a general matter, they actually work very, very hard to maintain good relationships with each other. And they do that not just because it makes their working lives more tolerable, but I think they, they believe, I think, that it's an important part of what they do, right? They're deciding difficult questions. They don't always agree. And if they can't get along, you know, the, the, the point is that we have the rule of law to, to resolve these differences, not, and don't have to resort to fisticuffs or, or other forms of violence. So I think that there's a pretty strong ethic of not taking things personally and not be getting personal with each other. At least there was. And I, I have to say, I don't, see evidence that that has changed with the possible exception of the incident with Justice Gorsuch refusing to wear a mask uh, and Justice Sotomayor the, therefore not sitting on the coming to sit in the courtroom on that day and, and participating remotely. Uh, but even there, right, we saw shortly thereafter a joint statement from the two of them describing their relationship as warm. So I, I think that they will resist they will at least try to resist getting personal, getting personally angry with each other. But depending on what comes out, that could change. 
So since I asked you a binary question to start out, I'm going to throw you another one. The two leading theories on this are the leak came from the liberal side, a, a liberal clerk or perhaps a justice you know, themselves, outraged over the Alito opinion. And the alternative B is it came from the conservative side to lock in those two justices who Roberts might try to peel off, Kavanaugh and Barrett. Which one do you lean to? I definitely lean to B, again, emphasizing I don't know, right? It's speculation. But I don't see the strategic advantage from the, the liberal side. That, that nothing that's ha- and I do see the strategic advantage of the conservative side. I mean, we see these protests in front of the justices' homes right now. I, um, you know, I'm pro-choice. I'm not happy about this opinion. I think Roe and Casey were correctly decided, although I might have written them differently. But I think that these protests, if are at best counterproductive, and so and they were also utterly predictable. So I think that or pro- some form of protest. So I think somebody who was trying to lock in votes on the conservative side would have more of a strategic incentive to uh, to leak it than somebody on the liberal side. But that's speculation. I've got another one for you as a law professor. It's not binary. Okay. It is. Okay. And we discussed this earlier in the pod, but I'd, I'd, I'd like to hear your uh, thoughts. The Democrats, of course, are outraged and are talking about passing national legislation by Congress that codifies Roe v. Wade. Of course, that would require doing away with the filibuster in order to get there, but that's what they're talking about. Were they to do that, what would be, could, would that law, could that law override all the restrictive anti-abortion laws passed by the state legislatures? And would we just be looking at another Supreme Court challenge if there was a dispute about that? In which case, the new decision stripping away that this is about a constitutional right, where would that leave the court? The short answer to your question is that if Congress passes just a straightforward law that says Casey or Roe is now the law of the land, legislatively, there is no question that that will be challenged in court. And I am not super optimistic that it will be upheld by this Supreme Court. Having said that, there are other forms of laws that the Congress could pass that would have at least similar or partially or accomplish at least some of the same ends. For example, Congress could pass a law that says that where medication, whether it's birth control or the abortion pill or plan B or IUDs, which medical devices have been approved by the FDA, states cannot outlaw their use. That would be, that's within congressional power. Congress could pass a law that says that states can't criminalize people leaving their own residence, leaving the state to obtain an abortion in another state. I think Congress could definitely do that. I think Congress could pass a law that says that states can't criminalize somebody within their state helping another person do that. Those are things that I don't think would be struck down, although this court is so hostile to abortion rights. I'm not 100% sure. So I assume you, you would 
if it were a Republican-controlled Congress that passed a federal ban on abortion, you think overriding, you know, New York's abortion laws, California's abortion laws, you think this Supreme Court would uphold Congress's ban? I do. I do. I mean, I can go into the legal theory. Yeah. Why? Why would? Why would? I mean, (laughs) on what grounds could they uphold a Republican passed national ban, but strike down a Democratic passed, uh, you know, law codifying Roe versus Wade? Well, there are two answers to that. There's the sort of the answer the law professor is not supposed to give, which is that one is except if you're on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) the podcast exception. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, look, it's we there are five justices on this court who are willing to allow a state to pass a law that completely invalidates a constitutional right. We're t- I'm talking about SB8, the, the case, the law in Texas where, that allows private people to sue over abortions. So, you know, if they're willing to do that, I think they are. It appears to me. And again, I'm you know, this is just based on what I see, that there is a lot, that their hostility to abortion rights is extremely strong. Um, and so that might color how they evaluate like a national abortion ban versus a, a law protecting na- abortion rights nationally. So that's one answer. Now there's a more legalistic hook that I can point to. For example, both laws could be, could be justified as Congress exercising their commerce power because abortions are a form of commerce, they involve the use of materials that are that move, that move in commerce. So certainly, Congress undoubtedly has the power to, just as it could say, we're we're making the abortion pill legal throughout the country. They could also say we're making it illegal throughout the country. That 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 I don't think is in question. Um, but then there's a, another issue which has to do with the question of whether or not a fetus would be recognized as a person under the 14th Amendment. And if the if if it is plausible, or if the court decides a fetus is a person under the 14th Amendment, then Congress might have the power under the 14th Amendment to act to protect fetuses in that way. So that's and you know, if we go down that road, we're a lot there are a lot of a lot of things follow from that that are, at least in my mind, extremely disturbing. But that's a possible route we could find ourselves on. Well, sounds like there's a lot of <laughs> disturbing directions this could go, but I do want yes, to thank that's you. True. <laughs> yeah. I do want to thank you for uh sharing these insights uh and um hope to uh, stay in touch as things develop. Well, I'd love to come back. These were great questions. Mm-hmm.